Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. How are you doing, folks? Thanks for being plugged in. This episode is number 112, and my guest is Jorge Soltero, who currently resides in Puerto Rico. For a quick snapshot of Jorge, he began as a floor trader in Chicago, where he was an options market maker. A few years into his career, he landed a position at Hull Trading. This is the renowned firm of legendary trader Blair Hull. After Hull Trading was bought by Goldman Sachs in 1999, Jorge became more of an institutional trader, not only working at Goldman, but later UBS and Merrill Lynch too, where he specialized in options and ETFs. Listening to this episode, you're going to hear about the culture of trading pits exactly what it was like to be a trader at Hull Trading, what makes ETFs an attractive product, amongst many other things too. It was fun to chat with Jorge. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. Here it is. Uh, good day today. I caught a, a bit of that rally in the U.S. equities. The dollar is, uh, actually, I actually didn't see where it, uh, where it was settling now, but I'm always fearful when, when Trump is talking. <laughs> these days he seems to, to turn things you know, whatever whatever was happening before he started talking gets reversed but uh no today today was actually all right now you're living in puerto rico correct yeah okay and how long have you been living there for i know you were originally born there and you've just moved back there recently how long have you been back for since august of uh, last summer so just coming on six months and what's it like there? I imagine it's it's a pretty laid back sort of place, or is that just sort of how the movies portray it? No, it is. It's not a, a full on resort island by any means. There's a metropolitan area. You know, there's a million and a half people live in the city, so it's it's you know there's good bits of culture and you know cinemas and auditorium and you know concert halls and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's a small small city. Uh, and then it does have its laid back island kind of beach vibe as well. But it's not all flip flops and shorts um, <laughs> like you like you would think um, in, uh, in, a, in the Virgin Islands or something like that. That's, you know, you have some commerce. But no, Puerto Rico, it's, it's, it's a bit I like the things the best of both. Great, great weather year round. 
uh, fun people, fun things to do. Um, not quite the hustle and bustle of London by any stretch, but then it's always going to be over 25 degrees here. Of course. And does Puerto Rico have a stock exchange there? No, nothing like that at all. I always thought in terms of finance, Puerto Rico would be a great bridge between. So it, politically, Puerto Rico is part of the U.S., but not a state. But when it comes to finance, it's all U.S. regulatory stuff. The tax regime is a little different, but in terms of regulations, it's, it's U.S. So I always thought Puerto Rico would be a great bridge between Latin America, say, and, and the U.S. For, for money coming in both directions. Never really caught on for some reason. Um, there's a few public companies, a couple of big banks that, that trade on the stock exchange here. They all have uh, you know, reasonable businesses here for, for mostly retail finance and um, some investment stuff that goes on here, but not, uh, not as an exchange or anything like that. Yeah, I had no idea that Puerto Rico was part or, or owned by the U.S., Shows you how much I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little far away for you to be, for it to be on your radar. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. So you moved to the US for study, you know, going back to once you finished uh, schooling and that sort of thing. You graduated um, from your studies with a degree in philosophy. How did a philosophy graduate get interested in trading? Well, it's really because I was in Chicago. So in Chicago, you had... The three major exchanges, as, as I knew the world at the time, coming on 25 years ago, uh, the board, the Merck, and the CBOE. So you were going to run into traders no matter what you were doing on any Friday or Saturday night. Some of my friends went into that bit of the business, and it always sounded pretty exciting and interesting to me. You know, I'd seen it in uh, Trading Places and Quicksilver, uh, a couple of old movies. And all of a sudden, I realized, wait a second, I got these three exchanges here in the city. You could go visitors gallery. You could interact with the guys who just stumble and they're like, hey, how are you doing? So um, I managed to to meet a couple of them through one of my other jobs before this. And they said, yeah, just if you want to do this, just come on down and, and do it. Don't don't overthink it. Don't don't try to start doing it part time and then maybe get into it. Just come down to the floor and you know get a job. So. Um, I got a couple of interviews with market making firms and they, you know, they always give you puzzle questions for to kind of test out your math. So it's not a, I, I'm guessing it's probably much more rigorous now than it was then. And so I, I, you know, made my way through the the puzzle and the, the quick thinking math questions that they asked me. And there's a, so the philosophy degree was just kind of a, an amusing thing for the people that, uh, that were interviewing me to, to talk about because, uh, as far as they were concerned, it was a degree from the University of Chicago. They were happy with that. They uh, figured anything I needed to learn about options trading and risk management and, and market making, all that stuff, they would teach me or I'd pick up from the floor. I wouldn't have learned in school anyway. And uh, so that, that's sort of how I ended up on the, on the trading side. Okay. So when you were going for these jobs uh, as a trader, did you actually have a job already like at the time? Yeah, my, my first job was not in, in this business at all. I, I was working for the Archdiocese of Chicago at the time. So it um, it was just, you know, an administrative job. And but one of our board members was a bond trader. And that was my first uh, my first interaction with, with, you know, real pit trading and, and, and that sort of thing as it happened in Chicago. So through him, I, I met some other people. And then I realized a couple of my friends had gone on to, to jobs in that area. 
So then I left that, and fortunately, I you know it wasn't it wasn't a walking away from a big salary to to a trading kind of st- job uh, with with all the uncertainties that brought along. Uh, and I was younger, so it was uh, it was a good time to to make a transition, a good place to make a transition from. And I'm just curious, you know, you said that you had a few friends who were into trading, uh, going back, what was it, 25 years ago now. Are any of those friends still in the business? A couple of them, I believe they are. Um, the, the guy who introduced me to the firm I ended up joining, I actually don't know. I lost track of him, uh, but a couple of the other ones still are. None of them are on the floor anymore. They've all uh, gone on through... Uh, to different things uh, through the firms that they were with um, and ended up upstairs and some run their own firms. Now others are still just uh, making a living um, uh, trading their own books and, but doing it upstairs and it's much more automated. Now from my San Francisco days, which was a, a few years after that, that was an interesting breakup of the crowd because it wasn't so much automation that that broke up that floor. It was multiple listing. So San Francisco floor used to have the uh, basically a monopoly on on a few technology stocks, including Microsoft and Cisco, Sun Micro. When multiple listing came around and the SIBO and, and Philly and other places listed options on those stocks, a lot of the business drained away from the PCOs. So those guys kind of had to figure out something else to do. And, and many left trading to do other things, you know, some in finance, some in real estate, um, all over the shop, really. But their their edge from being good peak pitch traders in the peak coast, once that was gone, they, they knew they had to they had to move on and, and they're no longer doing that. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting subject. And I'm going to pick up on that in a little bit. Um, let me just ask you, though, what was your first job that you got in trading? Who were you working for? It was a market, small market-making firm called uh, Apollo Trading, turned into Apollo Derivatives later on. And that was uh, one of the guys, maybe both, actually, I don't remember exactly, was uh, XCRT, Chicago Research and Trading. And I worked, I was a clerk in um, the currency pits at the Merck. So I worked for a couple of the currency traders, Deutschmark at the time, Um was one of the main currencies that traded in the Merck floor. It was uh, DMARC, Yen, and uh, the British Pound. And I alternated and clerked for, uh, for traders in those pits um, for my first, uh, my first year there, maybe, maybe first nine months before I actually started trading, All, always on the options side of things. So these were options on, on the currency futures. Uh, reasonably busy because they would you'd get a lot of hedging and offloading business from, from the big banks. So the futures pits were very busy. The demarket was huge. The the yen was very busy. And I remember um, it, it was hovering around par for a while back in, uh, I think this was 94. So it, it, it just generated a lot of activity. And it really was the, the stereotypical, really noisy, very physical job. You, you see it actually in the in the Ferris Bueller movie. They, they have a shot of the Merck floor and it's a currency floor that they're showing. Um, and I was one of those guys in the, in the yellow coats. Uh, you know, giving signals and yelling and yelling out prices and, you know, looking after uh, after traders all the time, trying to learn the, the marketing misses from a from a floor traders perspective. You using sheets, um, you're you're running P&Ls, you're running risk reports, you're following the, the 
order flow as it comes in from the from the floor brokers, giving orders out into the pit, people replying back with markets, everyone fighting to get a piece of, of trade, and just really trying to capture a bid offer, getting their hedges in, all done either by yelling or hand signals and stuff like that. It was a, it was controlled chaos. And uh, after that, we moved, the, the firm wanted to go into the euro dollars, uh, euro dollar futures, which was an enormous pit. Uh, this was you know, football field size. And the options were on one end and then all the other different contracts traded um, across the room. And yeah, I, I guess there's thousands of people in here. And it really was a physical job there. You needed you needed to be tall. You needed to be aggressive. You need to, because you needed to make yourself seen and heard across an enormous amount of people and enormous amount of noise. So we tried to break into that pit. That that had mixed results. It was an interesting way to trade because it's not it's not the most dynamic contract in the world. It it tends to move and trend, but the option side were were pretty busy, and there was there were some guys who were making a ton of money that were not. We're not super sophisticated in terms of the systems they were using or the option pricing systems they were using, but they were just really good at capturing the bid ask and, and, and spreading in and out of trade to uh, to lay off risk in what was a busy contract. So that's, uh, you know, I got it was in that pit that somebody said, you know, you never want to be the biggest trader in any one pit. You want to be at best, maybe the second biggest. And I said, what do you mean? And like, well, you always want someone to get out. And that at the time didn't make a ton of sense. But as I, as you know, I developed as a trader and as I saw other, other uh, things go through in the business, you realize, yes, you, you need, you know, who, who are you unloading your position with? If you have to, or if you need to, or, uh, you know, something happens, you need liquidity. If you're the main liquidity provider in a pit, you, you, you can end up stuck. So it was one of those things where you, uh, after years, you see the number one trader, the biggest trader in a pit, that, that position changed a lot. But the top five after that, they're usually the same guy. I feel like I've heard someone else who was a floor trader on the podcast on a previous episode mention something similar. So it's really interesting that you say the same thing. You know, when you say these pits were very, uh, you had to be very aggressive and they were very physical. How physical did it get? I mean, were there times when fights actually broke out? Yeah, um, there, there were. The, it was reasonably controlled, and these were people's livelihoods. So in general, though there were scuffles and shoving matches for sure, um, it would you wouldn't see a ton of activity like that on the actual floor because people would get fined um, or you'd get thrown out, and nobody wanted to. You know, you pay a fine, and you know I, I hesitate to admit, but, but I, I get got fined myself a couple of times, not not for physical stuff, but for using. Uh, non-business-like language uh, on the floor. But uh, no, people would actually walk off the floor and go to one of the, I forget what they called it when I was at the SIBO, but it was like, oh, I'm meeting you at the whatever. And and you'd go and sometimes they would actually fight. Sometimes it would get stopped before it started. Uh, it, it would get it would get physical. I mean, you think about it, I mean, you had all kinds of people with different backgrounds down there. It was their everyone's livelihood that was at stake to some degree. Uh, different personalities, and you had um, it's the job in a way I find unique because you spent all your day next to your competition, not your coworkers. So if you work for a for a trading group or trading firm, your other workmates would be in other pits, 
And maybe there was a second trader in the same pit you were in. But by and large, you're spending your day with your competition. You're making markets against them. You're, you're trying to get pieces of trades that they're doing the same thing. So, so it's a reasonably full-on competitive environment, and inevitably somebody would lose their uh, their temper, and uh, it would get uh, you know at least a shove of some sort, and somebody would would you know cooler heads would prevail eventually, only because people are like, listen, you're going to get thrown out. You know, worst case, you could get arrested. <laughs> Nobody wanted that. So, but yeah, people did leave the floor to to uh, go settle uh, slights, real and perceived. <laughs> That's kind of funny. It seems almost like very schoolyard like. <laughs> there, there were some. There were some rules that that were you know th- things that set off arguments. I mean, it's crazy things like your spot in the pit. It mattered where you stood relative to the order flow mattered, and there were some spots that were better than others, and some guys that were taller than others. That you know, the taller you were in some of these crowds, the the easier, the more real estate options you had because you were tall. If you weren't that tall, then you needed to be closer to this guy or closer to that other guy. And people would get in very early in the morning to kind of claim their spots. And as you establish yourself as a as a trader in the pit, whatever that meant for the particular crowd and the particular culture in that floor and on that crowd, you'd have less of a hassle kind of reclaiming your spot every morning. But in other places in San Francisco, you know, the market opened at 6.30 in the morning. I'd be on the floor at 4 with a bunch of other people. Uh, the floor didn't open till 4.30, but you'd have to get there to the vestibule, sit in the elevator bank, waiting for the floor to open. When the floor opened, everyone speed walked or, or, or raced to their pit to claim their spot. A couple of hours before trading even began. Just, just because where you stood affected your ability to see business and to interact with the business that came into the into the floor. I think, you know, that that's the prehistoric co-location is where you stood physically. Now, now it's just a matter of putting a server in, you know, a few feet away from, from wherever you need it. But back then, you actually had to stand there. But, you know, claiming your bit of real estate set off a number of arguments. And, and those were ones I had as well. Um, some some great insults were, were thrown at people at the time, too. Uh, when, when things got heated about where you stood and where you wanted to stand. I think that's a great description on, on how you describe it as like the, the, the old way of co-location. You know, these days we have servers co-located and everyone's fighting for that. So yeah, that's, that's a great way of putting it. So tell us about when you moved on to whole trading. How did you get a position at whole trading? So I knew some of the Hull guys from, um, I traded in a 10-year pit. That was my first badge was in the board, and I traded 10-year note options. And I knew some of the Hull guys from that, and also from the neighborhood in Chicago where I lived. And my, my, uh, my wife actually worked for one of them in a, in a, that he was on a board. Um, so I left Apollo, came back to Puerto Rico briefly, and Hall at the time had their firm and their market making business, but they were also backing a few traders. So I got in touch with, with the guys I knew and they're like, yeah, definitely come in. Um, you know, see if, see if, uh, if it, there's a fit and we'll back you. And I went in for my interview and all was going well, but then I was the best part of a day at Hall talking to, to different people. But all of a sudden more of the partners, were on the market making side or regular vanilla trading group side started coming in and they just turned around and said, listen, you know, 
we can continue to talk about backing you as a trader, but we'd like to have you part of the regular trading team here if you want to consider that. And uh, that's how that uh, that happened. Hall was at the time very well known. They were uh, um, one of the bigger users of trading technology. At the previous firm, we used a third party, like many people did, use a third party options uh, pricing system that you tweak. And we had some developers that, that kind of adjusted. I mean, they, they were somewhat malleable and everyone was working on their own system as well. And so many places used to third party software, but Hall at the time, Timber Hill and a place called Gbar, they had they, they were known because they had their own systems. And the Hull traders actually had handheld computers. So so they were there were a, a regular presence on the floor of the Hull guys. So they they offered me a, a job to go work with them. I said, Yeah, absolutely. That's great. I knew some of the guys already, I knew I'd get along with them. And um, so it was a I thought it was a good fit and it ended up being a, a very good fit for many years. Okay. And earlier you brought up the point that when you went for these, uh, when you went for a few uh, of these interviews uh, to try and get a job, you know, they asked you a lot of questions. Uh, there were some math questions and uh, sort of some problem solving questions. Do you recall any of the questions that you were asked in the initial interview at Hull Trading? Um, yeah. So the Hull guys asked me, let's see, there was a, there were ones that kept coming up. Um, one of the guys said, so, so you think you're okay with numbers, right? And I said, yeah, I, I think I'm all right. And he said, really, what's three-fifths of 700? Yeah. So it's just arithmetic, but, you know, at the time you had to be think quickly and, and, and get these things done in your head. So it was somewhat relevant. And then um, they asked about um, the Sears Tower, which I believe has a different name, but you could see the Sears Tower from the office we were in. So he said, you see the Sears Tower there. Um, can you imagine a stack of pennies from the bottom all the way to the top of the Sears Tower? And I said, yeah. Like, do you think that stack of pennies would fit in this room? And so that was an interesting one. And it's one that I, that I, you know, we asked just to see how people think. And I know there's, there's a different version of you know, ping pong balls inside a Boeing 747, things like that. that you read about that even Google is asking now. And then there was another one about the, oh, yeah, the, the NCAA tournament question was a classic hall one where they ask you, uh, and I don't know you, if you're familiar with it, but the college basketball ends their season with March Madness, which is a big uh, 64-team tournament. That takes place over uh, a few weeks, and in fact, one of your uh, one of your other episodes, I think they were talking about the amount of betting that goes on around March Madness. Um, well, Hull participated in that. Everyone, everyone on the floor did. Uh, but there was a question that we asked. It's you find out where the the candidate's hometown is, and it's like, okay, uh, Joe, the the NCAA has decided to host the uh, entire tournament in your town. How many games do you have to schedule? And if you're familiar with the, the way the tournament brackets go and it's uh, single elimination and all that, you know, it's, you, usually people would start thinking, okay, there's 64 teams. So the first round is 32 games. And then the next round is 16 and 32 plus 16. And as you see them going through that arithmetic in their head, you're like, come on, I don't have all day. And how long is this going to take you? And, uh, you know, you, you start getting them stressed. And, you know, I, I think maybe one guy got it right out of the gate. But usually it was it was a good way to get them a little off kilter as they're trying to do all this arithmetic in their head. 
And then you tell them, okay, wait a second, let me ask you this. And again, you could only ask this question to people that, that knew how the tournament worked, which is mainly anyone in America, but not necessarily in, in, in London or Asia. Like, okay, you, you start out with 64 teams. How many teams win? You say one. How many teams lose? 63. How many games do you have to schedule? Ah, I see. So it was one of those, uh, you know, trying to stress them out a little bit while they're thinking with, about numbers, just, just to be somewhat realistic. There were other things that, that other people, it was actually get multiple candidates in one room and start asking questions and see who answered first and all that. We, we didn't do that. Okay. Well, you obviously passed the interview. So, um, <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> at, at that point, to be fair, at that point, I'd already been trading a little, um, a couple of years. So I was more of a, of a lateral hire, although I did start out as a clerk for a few months um, while they get com- comfortable and they figure out where they want to put me and all that. Um, but yeah, definitely for the, for the rookie guys, those were the, those were the kinds of questions that you got asked. Sure. So when you first started there, you know, you already mentioned that um, Hull was one of the few uh, trading firms at the time that actually used their own systems. Was there anything else about Hull trading that was obvious to you when you first started um, that Hull Trading was not your regular trading firm? Well, the way they, they look, took risk, and you know this, you know, I stood in front of the Hull Trader in the tenure pit, um, who would become my, my coworker later on, but so you saw the, the way that they approached the trading side, and you had different kinds of traders, some were more cowboys than others, some were more aggressive and, and actually, uh, would lose their tempers or, or would want to be jump on trades just to trade. They would trade out of boredom. The whole guys I knew didn't do that for the most part. They, they were very, uh, systematic about following the way that they were pricing the options and, and the way that the order flow was coming through. So they wouldn't trade if they didn't have to. They, they wouldn't participate just to participate in general. And while they could trade as big as anybody else for sure in terms of capital, they wouldn't necessarily put themselves in a position to to be sucking up all the liquidity just because they could. So they would participate along with with the other traders. They would take the lead in busy markets just because they had better technology. So in terms of a, of an interest rate move or a, uh, a a big number coming out and adjustments that you have to make to volatility or your forward curves, Hull would have those much quicker than anybody else. So they were more confident in their trading. And one of the things I was taught early on in terms of options trading uh, was you have to trust your model. And that's very, that's much easier to say when you're a place like Hall and the model is your own and it dynamically tweaks and you, you're more aware of how it works and who's behind it and, and how it's being implemented than if you're using a, a third party thing. So, so the whole guys definitely had that mentality. They, now, we weren't, you know, the, the expression was sheep monkeys. You still had a, a degree of latitude, and sometimes the computer wasn't faster than, than the way the floor was going, and you had to start, uh, you know, paying over sheets or under sheets while the, while the system's caught up. But uh, for the most part, they were, they were very methodical about how they traded, and they were, although it was understood that they could be as big as anybody else, they, they weren't flaunting that. Uh, they they didn't have any need to stand out um, in a in a trading crowd. So with that being said, did the way that you trade change when you came into whole trading? Yes, it had to. Well, the first thing was I, I went to a different pit. So I went from having spent time in the ten year note 
trading and, and, and then uh, in the bond pit trading options, I went to equity. But mainly, you're trading now as part of a bigger group. And we had, I think, I was in the OEX, uh, the S&P 100, which was super busy. I doubt anyone even knows what that is anymore. But uh, back then, it was supremely busy, much more so than the uh, S&P 500. And we would communicate a lot with each other in terms of the levels we were seeing in our particular corners of the crowd. Just because the crowd was so big, things would trade, and we would make sure that we weren't getting crossed just because something's trading at the wrong price 100 feet away from you. So we communicated a lot. We trusted the system a lot. And, and that was also, uh, it, it was a, a relief and an adjustment that all of a sudden you're looking at a machine and it makes you, it can make you a little lazy in terms of, okay, if the price isn't the price I have showing me on my, uh, on my theoretical pricing screen, then I'm not going to trade it. You know, you didn't want to do that, but your, your way of participating in trades changed and the way that you went after some trades changed. So rather than wanting to be a small part of any ticket, you wanted to be a big part of good tickets and no part of some tickets. And you had more awareness of that because of the systems and because of, of the communication that was kind of triangulated across the, the traders and clerks that were, uh, that were working with us. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. So you're referring to models and systems here. How much discretion did you have to use compared to how much of it was really a matter of just sort of following um, the models and the systems that had been developed? The, the way we wanted to trade, I mean, it was, I, I didn't always agree with this, but, but it's, it was really a blackjack model, right? You're just trying to capture a bit offer. You're not trying to put a position on, you're not trying to make necessarily a big bet on volatility or certainly not Delta. You're just trying to trade the bid ask and capture that all day long. The markets weren't always. So my, my big discussion with one of the financial engineers was talking about blackjack well there's always another hand that gets dealt and as long as you got capital you can participate in that o- that other hand in trading if the order flow starts going one way and all of a sudden you only have put buyers well you're going to be as a market maker you're going to be a put seller and you can talk about bid offer all you want but if no one's selling anything then you can't you're not going to no, you're not going to have anything to buy so every every now and then you have to step outside and say wait a second what what's which way have we been accumulating positions here? Maybe we need to uh, maybe we need to alter what we're doing and be a little more aggressive than the system is telling us to be. Just just to come back to within our, our risk parameters, which were communicated across the floor with some regularity. So we know if our uh, and then this is something I don't think everyone did, but we we were all aware of what our uh, 
downside risks were and our, what our upside risk curves look like. So we're told, you know, down five, this is our PL, down 10%, this is our PL. And we had a, a certain amount of tolerance for things. And when, when you cross that, you have to start covering it. So then you would use your discretion to find the best trade to cover that without giving up too much edge. None, if you could, but uh, if you have to give up some, then you, you have to try and minimize that. And that that's when your skill as a trader and your ability to, to be your, your pit awareness came through, because then you'd know where to go for, for that kind of risk covering trade rather than just the normal participating in the order flow that comes in. Okay. So it was kind of a bit of both. Yeah. Yeah. And we were telling the guys, listen, ball's going up. You need to move the market higher. The skew's moving this way. I mean, we would see that in the pit before the, the machines would pick it up. So you, you had to have that kind of pit awareness of, of what was happening, what was going on with the order flow, what was going on with the market and relay that to the machine. Now it's changed because all the order flow goes through electronically. So, so the machine can interact with it as it's going through. Um, I'm using machine generically for any model or anything that you're using to, to price options. But uh, the better you were at communicating what you were seeing in the crowd, the more likely you were to have accurate and fast systems to, to deal with it. Now, for someone who worked at whole trading like you did, how obvious or how prevalent was the blackjack influence? It was, you were very aware of it. When you joined, you were given a, um, certainly when, when I joined, a copy of the New Market Wizards interview with Blair. So you were aware of who, whose name you were standing behind. And there was a, a Fair amount of card playing um, on the off trading hours uh, time, and a lot of chess playing by the by the developers and the financial engineers. But there, the whole blackjack thing, the whole you know have an edge, exploit it when you do, scale back when you don't. That was that was always talked about, and we it was talked about in different ways in terms of of what our overall firm risk was, what the different instrument risks were. So if you're Trading in the equity index crowd, or if you're in the financial, uh, in the fixed income crowd, all those all those crowds had their own um, different risk metrics. But it was always in terms of of the whole. This is what we think our edge is. If you see something that's outside of this, then we want to bet big on it. And it, we were all aware of how Blair had made uh, a lot of money. We we're all aware of the Beat the Dealer book. When we went to the Riverboat Casinos, we were always mindful that we played good strategy in blackjack just because we didn't want to come back to the office and say, yeah, I had no idea what the count was and, uh, you know, I lost money. That'd be a little embarrassing. So, yeah, it was reasonably, reasonably prevalent. Yeah. When you first started your answer there and you said that you were given a book, I thought you were going to say you were given a copy of uh, Edward Thorpe's Beat the Dealer. <laughs> no, you know what? I remember looking for one after uh, after reading the interview and not being able to find one. I don't know if it had been out of print. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it was, uh, it, was a, it's, well, it was a book I was looking for. Uh, and now I got to pick up his latest one, which looks pretty interesting. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. I've started uh, reading. I've got the Kindle version of it. I got it sort of pre-release because I did the interview with uh, Edward Thorpe. So if anyone listening wants to check out that interview, it's uh, episode 109 uh, with Edward Thorpe. But 
Um, yeah, I do need to pick up a hard copy. I just, I mean, for me, hard copy is the way to go. I know, call me old school. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's that. That is old school. No, but it, it's uh, the whole modeling thing. I remember I was just thinking now in terms of gambling. You know, the NCAA tournament was a big, uh, a big uh, recreational gambling thing that the guys did, along with uh, what was called then rotisserie baseball, fantasy league baseball, which was done by hand or or on Excel spreadsheets from data that you'd get from the newspapers. I mean, right now it's much easier to do all online, but uh, at the time it was uh, all very manual intensive. And I remember going to the off-track betting site with some of the guys from Hall, and one of them had a handheld, you know, probably wouldn't be nearly as powerful as, a, as an old Nokia, but it was what people had at the time in terms of handheld computers. And he had designed a quick and dirty model to see uh, horse betting. So it, it was a bit of a disease with the guys that are trading there to make a model, try and model everything. That no, no matter what it was that you were doing, you're trying to pick it apart and uh, design a model around it. Did he have much success with it? Do you know? I, I, it was meant to work, but the problem is the, the off-track betting place didn't cooperate. So what you needed to see was it really tried to capture the changes in the odds in the time leading up to a race, and then you'd place your bet right before, the, from, from what I understood him telling us this. I mean, I, I thought it was the nerdiest thing on the planet to try and, and, and be typing into a, a microscopic Excel sheet um, on, on your, on a handheld computer when you're out in the track on a Friday afternoon. But, um, I think it was meant to work, but the, the odds flashed on the screen. They didn't stay up long enough for you to capture it. So you could write them down or for him to put them in his, his, his little handheld. So that was a big fly. I'd look like a total nerd too if it, if it made money, if it worked, you know. <laughs> if it worked, no, it was, we, we couldn't knock, knock it too much. We just thought it was a, a lot of work because every time the screen rolled through to, this, to the race he was looking at, he's like, everybody, wait, wait, what, what was that? What was that? And, um, you know, inevitably you wouldn't catch all of them and it wouldn't work, but sometimes it did. And, and then, you know, it, it, it seemed to have some science behind it in terms of just capturing the, the, the velocity of money. So in 1999, Hull Trading was bought by Goldman Sachs. You know, just to recap on your experience there, what were some of the biggest things which you took away from having worked at Hull Trading? The whole team aspect of it was very important. And when you got interviewed, fit was a big deal because they needed to know not only you were a good trader, but that you were a good trader in the, in the way that Hull does things. And it wasn't also just about interacting with traders you interacted with the financial engineers and, and the developers quite a bit. I mean, we were all in the office together. We all sat down for morning meetings. Everyone heard the P&L and risk uh, calls together. So, so you did get a very strong sense of camaraderie and, and a sense of this, this is what we're up to. And this is why, and everyone has their own particular jobs. And uh, it was, a very good lesson in, in how to do things that are complicated and splitting jobs apart and getting the best people to do the best the tasks they're best suited for in order to get the, the best result you can. Now, it wasn't perfect and, and there were situations where, you know, models break down and, and things just go awry. But because you've done it as a team, you, you react to that kind of setback better as well. Because there's, there's a sense of, you know, we went in together and we thought we had a good plan. It didn't work. You know, it, there was never any, any severe pointing fingers or, or, you know, the, the, 
what do you call them? The postmortems on on good and bad things were were always very healthy, and that I think was a was a meaningful thing. And and some of it carried over to Goldman. Goldman Sachs, having come off being a partnership, you know, the whole fit and teamwork aspect of it, a you know, much more competitive place to be sure. But uh, there still was a, a culture of, of fit and understanding. There there was a culture, and you have to understand it and 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 be you know committed to being a part of that. Yeah. And that's one of the things that really stood out to me uh, when I interviewed Blair on episode 85 is that uh, his comments around uh, the team aspect, um, I thought that was that was very cool to hear about. It was, it was a big deal to him. And he, he did walk around the floor. He knew, not around the, the office, and he knew everybody that was there working for him. And, and it was, he was a good resource to have around. But he was, he was a visible presence on the floor. Mm. So after the buyout... Uh, in 99, what were you doing at Goldman? So the guys that I was working with at the time I was running the, the, well, it was, I was the senior trader in San Francisco office, which was three people and trading Microsoft and, and the queues had just been listed over there. Uh, the opportunity came for me to move to London with Goldman. So a year after the buyout, I uh, packed up my stuff and, and we moved over to London. So, you know, everyone's pretty excited to have Goldman Sachs buy us. I mean, was, we, we understood the, the, the mystique of the firm and, and the lore. But at the same time, there was a, we were a bit nostalgic because we were a small firm. We all knew each other. We, we were like, oh, you know, now, we get, now we're part of something that, that's enormous. And, you know, how's that going to work? I was actually pretty excited. You know, I knew the, the reputation Goldman had, and I thought I'd really just got into Goldman through the back door. And I'm sure some people there would absolutely agree. But the I, I was pretty excited. And they offer uh, to, to move me over to London to trade over there. No idea what I was walking into, but uh, I was pretty excited. So tell us a little bit about how you managed the transition from going from a floor trader to now trading behind a screen. That that was hard, and it was it was an ongoing project for for a while, because the the first thing you know I talked about how how physical and competitive the job was. Well, it, that's a hard thing to turn off as a trader that you're now sitting alongside your coworkers and you're interacting with a screen, and you know at the time phones. Now it's even less of that, but at the time it was mainly mainly you know pointing and clicking and then picking up a phone and talking to somebody. That was a big change because you're used to the energy, the noise of the crowd, and you feed off of that. You kind of get a sense of the rhythm of the market by what's going on in the noise level. So if something, and just look across the floor, so not just your, your pit, but other things too. So the bond, you know, big order comes into the bond pit, you've paid in 10 years, you're going to pick that up from noise before you even know what's going on. So you lose things like that instantly. And, and I had, I was a bit lost. Uh, the guys I moved, when I moved to London, I was one of a couple of guys that came from, from the US side. Most of the people, m- most of the Hall guys in London and Hall uh, Goldman that, that joined Goldman were coming from the Frankfurt office. So they'd been trading off floor for a few years already. So they knew. Um, for me, it was hard, the, the, the quietness of it, this, this the relative silence was hard. I mean, it was a noisy trading floor, and there were people talking about stocks and screaming and yelling. Some things, but it was nowhere near the level of, of energy that you get from a, from a trading floor. And you also have to calm down a lot. 
you, you can't be as excitable. You know, the, the orders aren't coming as fast and furious as, as when you're in a trading crowd. So you, you're interacting with, with things that come by a chat message or, or even email, maybe a phone call. You have a lot more time to think about what you want to do and how you want to price something um, because the rest of the stuff is, is actually just being done live on a screen. And you're not you're not necessarily interacting with it that much. That that was very strange. It led to me being told to please calm down and not be as aggressive on the floor with, with salespeople, things like that. I mean, I, again, I hate to admit it, but um, it, it was one of those things where like, you know, you have to be told, listen, you're not on the trading floor anymore. Calm down. <laughs> and you know you t- you take that to heart, and you you're wearing uh, you're wearing trousers, you know, slacks, and uh, and a shirt now rather than than, than khakis and sneakers and, and a tattered tie around your neck. You're like, okay, well, I, I guess I need to, to shape up here. <laughs> yeah, and did you personally know many traders who who actually did really struggle and, and actually failed to make that transition successfully? I did because as, as I was leaving the the P coast, it it just happened to a lot of the guys that were in the Microsoft crowd with me. So again, their main edge, I mean, they were sharp guys, they were uh, you know, risk takers, they were good with the numbers, and they, they were good Microsoft option pit traders. Once that went away because the order flow dried up and it was going to the CBOE in Chicago, all of a sudden they're like, wait, there's not as much order flow for me to interact with. There's not as many people in the crowd for me to trade off of. Uh, you know, maybe I'll go upstairs and it just didn't work. Some of them didn't really fit the mold for an institutional trader. I'm not, I'm not saying I did. I just, again, we, we, we got into the back door to the institutional side because of the, the Goldman buyout. And I ended up having a, a reasonable upstairs career, but not everyone did. And the guys that went off on their own from the floor, they actually, that was their edge. And once that was gone, they, they had to find something else to do. Was there a particular line of work that most of them actually went into? Like, did they find other jobs, uh, maybe not as a trader, but still something related to financial markets? Yeah, and finance, I would say from, from memory, a couple went into retail brokerage and, and one of them actually was pretty successful because he had options knowledge that gave him a bit of a, of a sales edge when it came to talking to clients about, you know, advising clients. Not Not every retail broker um, is a former options trader that can talk reasonably about the opportunities for a retail account in, in trading options such as they are. So so that gave him a little bit of an edge in a new kind of venue. Other guys went into real, a lot of guys went into real estate. And, you know, again, this is San Francisco in the, in the late, uh, well, late 90s. So was, we didn't realize the market was going to crash, but a lot of them went into real estate. Uh, and uh, and did that or, or mortgages uh, for a while. The funny thing is, once you're not on the floor with them anymore, you you have very little in common with them. You don't interact with them as much. And you know, back in the when when I left and moved to you know, I, I didn't just leave and go upstairs. I left and, and went to another country. So without Facebook and and LinkedIn and Twitter and everything else, it, it was a little harder to stay in touch. So you, you do lose track of them. Um, not not all great stories. Some of them some of them did fine and reinvented themselves. We were by and large pretty young people um, in our in our early thirties, uh, kind of on the on the high end. So it was uh, you know it was a forced change for some of them. Okay, 
So you worked at Goldman Sachs for a few years after the buyout and then you also went on to UBS for a couple of years and then I think you did about 10 years at Merrill Lynch. Uh, do you just want to give us a quick overview of the sort of things you were doing uh, at those companies? Yeah, so uh, Goldman and UBS was all uh, index option trading. The uh, In Goldman, it was uh, in Europe. So the IBEX mainly, I, I didn't do that much Euro stocks, which was the, the dominant contract once the once the DAX kind of fell apart, uh, it, it yielded to the Euro stocks. Um, and uh, I traded foot, mainly foot CSMI and IBEX options while I was at Goldman. It was uh, it was an interesting time, but different different way of trading than what I'd done at Hall. Now you're making prices for clients, and you're making prices to to kind of take a position. You have to have a view, and you hope that you get a a way to unwind it uh, with other client flow or other market flow. But you have to be comfortable with the position. So so the position sizes were much lumpier, and uh, risk management was different at that point. And that's one of the strengths of the Hall system was we'd be able to to decompose your your risk management uh, and that's one of the reasons Goldman Bothell. So it was basically using the systems I was familiar with but doing new things with them. Uh, UBS was back in the US and I traded S&P options and, and the SPY options that came online while I was uh, while I was there that was a, a new um, a new product that came out um, but then when I moved to Merrill I switched and I went more into the I was my initial role there was a hybrid derivatives and equity finance role. So what what ends up happening is you you banks have a lot of stock inventory that that can be used in a variety of different ways uh, and through the derivatives desk I should say end up with long and short positions that can be optimized. And because I had some experience with uh, equity finance at the time, I kind of ended up in a in a newish role that Merrill put together. Which was a hybrid equity finance derivatives role. And I did that for a couple of years, including some corporate action trading, which again had a, a, a equity finance kind of bent to it. But then just after the, the crisis hit in 08, um, in early 2009, Merrill offered to move me back to London, uh, to run the Delta One desk over there. And that's what I've been doing up until now. And I just, uh, I just left. So that was ETFs, index swaps and uh, stock index futures. Okay, and as someone who was running a trading desk, what sort of things did that involve? Well, it's then, then it becomes, your main thing is, are you interacting with clients in the correct, are you prepared to interact with the clients in the correct way? Because that's where your order flow and your positions come from. So you, you've been trading for a while, you understand the trading and risk management side, you have your, your market views, you understand how you're going to make prices in the in the instruments that you're trading. So, but now you have to worry not just about managing a handful of traders, but also making sure that that you're interacting with clients in the in the correct way. So, because that's where your money comes from: orders from them, commissions from them, um, and that involves giving them ideas. It involves working with the salespeople so they know what you have on your book and what they can help you in or out of. It, it involves, you know, dealing with the different personalities on the desk and understanding how they want to trade and how you need them to trade and see who, who is going to be better at this kind of pricing and uh, who's going to be better at this other kind of pricing. Uh, just allocation of, of resources. It's, it's a little different than just running, running your own options. But now, now it's a you know, mini business within the, the investment bank. So 
you know, let's let's sort of move on from this a little bit. But before we do, you know, it, it's safe to say that the majority of your trading career this far has been really in the professional institutional side of things. Is there anything that you think retail traders could adapt from how you've traded over the years? Let me let me think about this because the, the main thing I would say is that the information edge that an institutional trader has is no longer as wide a gulf over the, the retail trader um, or the retail investor as it used to be. And I'm not just talking about CNBC, but there, there are so many resources that are available at, at zero or manageable cost to, to folks on the street or, or you know, they're not, not in these institutions that I think that's a big, a big thing. Um, you talk about a lot of the regulations that have come through and uh, a lot of the market structure, how the market structure has changed. It's really has benefited. The, uh, the end investor in many ways because of deeper liquidity, tighter bid offer spreads, more access to markets. And, th- and that can be good and bad because it can lead to, to overtrading or, or, or people getting involved in, in instruments that might not be suitable for them. I, I, I had a, um, you know, you, you see things in, in some commercials that, that you're like, wait a second, this isn't suitable for these people. Why are, how, how are they making this available to to anybody on the street, you need to have a little bit of a, of a market understanding before you start trading some of these things. But um, by and large, the edge that an institutional trader would have had over somebody on the on Main Street has diminished. It's not gone by any stretch. Obviously, you you have uh, much more visibility to everything that's going on, but. Because things are more electronic, because a lot of things get reported real time, because there's access to a variety of different source resources for information, not just the news channels, but just on, on online and the, the wires, I think that they can really go in thinking, okay, I'm not, I'm not as at a big disadvantage. Um, because the other thing that's happening is it's all gotten much more competitive and, and heavily regulated on the institutional side. So, you know, it's really no longer the case that one bank has one client that's market moving client wrapped around their finger. And they're the ones that are seeing how this works out. Most clients can't do that. They have a duty to find the best price for the structure and shop things around. So so things get around the street quicker and, and it's not and, and it, it leads to more competition on the pricing side and leads to better execution for everybody. But also just things get communicated quicker. So I, I would say. Don't underestimate the fact that, that the playing field is not as distorted as it as it certainly used to be. Yeah, okay. Uh, I think that's a fair comment. So as you've now moved back to Puerto Rico and you're essentially no longer an institutional trader, you're just trading your own money, you're essentially trading a retail account, how has someone like yourself uh, with that experience approached this? Like, how are you now approaching things as essentially a retail trader? Sure. The, the first thing is the position size matters. And I, you know, I've, I've had to manage risk in a variety of different guises. So I'm, I'm comfortable with risk. I'm comfortable taking risk. The position size now, I have to think about it a little bit. It's not more, uh, it's no longer a case of, you know, am I comfortable being long 
you know, X many millions or short this or now it's more like percentage of the capital that you're using and you have to be more tactical and you have to, you know, you like a position, how much capital are you going to allocate to that? that? That was never a consideration I had as an institutional trader or even even as a market maker, just because the pockets were that deep. And, and I was very fortunate in that in that regard that uh, the things were managed, um, that that kind of thing was managed away from me. So the the first thing is really think about position size and think about how you're going to use uh, how I'm going to use leverage, which is another edge that that we have is there's there's readily available leverage. If used judiciously, that that's really the way that, you know, you can maximize your your edge as a person sitting behind a desk trading this, that and the other thing um, and testing a variety of things out, getting used to. Being by myself, you know, that, that reminds me back to the pit training days. So although I spent most of my career on the institutional side, the pit days are the ones that I, that I enjoyed the most. That, that's where most of my, my fond, fond memories are just from, from the, the way trading happened. So that's taken me a little bit back to those days where you're, you're a little bit isolated and you, you think about what you want to do and how you're going to get it done. Um, so that's how I'm approaching the 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 business that uh, that I'm doing right now. What do I want to trade? How can I trade it? How big? How small? What's the right way? And then what information is out there? And what systems? Or how am I going to apply the systems I have? What else can I get? I mean, right now there's also the exploration phase of what's out there, and you know there's a lot of noise, but but there's there's enough out there that's good that um, you can extract value from in a different way than what I'm used to. So it's, it's been really a throwback to my floor days where kind of on your own, even though this time it's, it's my own capital at risk. And I also presume that the actual sort of trades that you're taking are quite different as well. Like your actual strategy is, is vastly different from how you would have been doing it over the past, you know, 20 or so years. Um, can you talk to us a bit about how you've approached that side of it too? Certainly. And this is one of the things that, that you know, on the institutional side, you're reacting to crying order flow. You can... Uh, you know, our ability to put positions on and you always hear institutional traders say, oh, you know, I'm a, I'm a great trader and I have this on and I have that on. But because of regulatory pressures, all, a lot of that went away. You simply couldn't be a prop trader sitting on a on a sell side uh, seat because the regulations wouldn't allow it. So you had to react to client order flow and your edge was where you sat. The fact that you would see many different orders and you have to formulate a market view before you price anything for a client. That's gone. Now I get to do whatever I want to do. So the whole idea generation bit, which we used to do for other people, now I get to do for myself. And I can put them in context of something that, that I want to do that I'm thinking about. A lot of ideas that maybe you know we had on our desk wouldn't be interesting to clients that we were talking to because you know they are pharma traders and all they care about is what the next pharmaceutical stock that's going to gap up 15% is they don't want to hear that you think the, the the high of the day is a buy because it's going to continue tomorrow on the on the main index. They don't want to trade indices and things like that. So while as a trader, you want to trade a liquid thing that, that that's going to give you a chance to, to do things around it. When you're in an institutional desk, you're just reacting to order flow. So thinking about what I wanted to trade, that took that took a bit of time where the liquidity was and where, where I thought I could put some things uh, together to uh, extract value. And, you know, it's, it's been a mixed bag of, uh, of success so far in the last uh, really six months of just, just under six months of actually doing it. 
but I'm, I'm reasonably optimistic we'll be able to, to do something uh, cool. Mm. And so you've also been experimenting a little bit with models as well? Yeah, nothing, nothing super sexy because at the end of the day, I wasn't a financial engineer. So, so that involves uh, seeing what I've been able to, to, to buy or, or get and now thinking about programming languages and, and how quickly I can teach myself to do some rudimentary stuff, possibly hire somebody and, and walk, work with them, which I know um, in some of your other episodes, you, you know, guys have said they've had to do that. And I think that's going to end up being a, uh, a part of, of what we do, simply because there is a lot of data out there. There is value in that data. There are ways to look at it to, to try and make money uh, trading. Clearly, people do it. Um, I think I've, I've come ac- across a couple of different ideas that I want to try out. So that involves modeling them out and, uh, and working with uh, you know, global data providers and, and different uh, number crunching apps to, uh, to try and see the t- test things out. Absolutely. Yeah. Just moving on to this, just a completely different subject. Um, ETFs, trading ETFs, this is something you mentioned that you might like to speak about um, when we were initially uh, talking prior to this. And trading ETFs is obviously something you've done very much on the institutional side. Why have ETFs been an attractive product for you to trade? I came across ETFs in 96. Um, that was, uh, I think, a couple of years after Spiders first came out. And at the time, I thought, this is great. It's a way for me to trade the whole index without having to trade futures, which I wasn't qualified to, to trade. I mean, I didn't have, you have to open a futures account. You know, I, I didn't, that, that seemed complicated, even though I was already in a trading job. It, it was just an, a very efficient packaging of things that I wanted to trade. And that's how I first came across it. Um, as time's gone on, I just really appreciate the, the variety of, of products that there are now in terms of thematically, you can find a passive instrument that's easy to trade, cheap, and easy to execute because you can get in, you can get out. The, the pricing uh, is, for the most part, pretty reasonable. In terms of the bid ask, they are they are liquid. They're taking over the the liquidity profile of, of the U.S. exchanges, really. Um, so it's it's just been a, a good way to express views long term or or more dynamically because of the the trading aspect of it and the fact that there's just cheap ways to to express these views um, just made it a very very interesting product to me. So for traders who are new to trading ETFs, is there anything important which they should perhaps be aware of? Yeah, I think if you need to think about how you're going to use the product, and if it's going to be a, a long-term strategic hold and investment, then you can take your time, find the cheap, because there's, they're inevitably, unless you're doing something that's really, really uh, unique, like even Blair Hall's own ETF product. There's, there's, that's it. That's the only one of its kind. But if you're talking about a sector ETF of some sort or, or a broad index ETF, there's going to be more than one flavor of them. You can take your time, find the cheapest management fee and buy that and hold it. If you're going to be trading, then, then you can worry less about what the management fee is and find the most liquid one. But it's worth looking into, and, and a lot of this information is out there on, the, on different websites, whether it tracks its underlying benchmark 
true or not? Or does it get out of kilter and end up being um, something that, that trades at a premium or a discount more often than not? Now, while that creates its own type of opportunities, if you're looking for, for momentum trading opportunities or you want to, you know, you know, get in and make a trade in, in pharmaceuticals or, or make a trade in, uh, whatever, some random sector, then just find the most liquid one because that, that's, that's how you, that's all you want. You don't necessarily cost two or five more basis points in terms of the annual management fee than, than another. It's not going to be as, as, as important as is there borrowing? Are there options listed on it? Are there, uh, you know, is there good daily volume that I can interact with? That those are the important things. But if it is a strategic hold or something for your retirement account or something like that, then definitely take the ex- extra few minutes to to find the the cheaper one in terms of management fee and and buy and hold that. I think a lot of the growth ETFs have had in the U.S. is because a lot of them have options listed on them, and that's another cool thing. If you find an ETF you like or a theme that you like, and it has an ETF and it has listed options on it. Even if you never do anything on the option side, the volume is going to be enhanced because of the options activity around it. Um, uh, or in the event that you do want to get involved, then they're, then they're there, they're listed, they're an option, they're, they're an alternative to actually trading the underlying security. Can you just take a second to explain how those management fees uh, work and when they actually take effect? Sure. Um, the Most ETFs have... Well, all ETFs have it listed and broadcast what their management fee is, an expense ratio, some call it. And that simply is the amount that BlackRock or Vanguard or State Street charges to run the product. That effectively drips out of the net asset value of the fund. So the price that you see on, on a screen during the day in the spider, that's a bit an offer. But every day, that basket of stocks that, that's behind that ETF is calculated and priced. And that's the net asset value for that fund. Now, the, the net asset value might be a little different than the last price spiders or whatever ETF traded. But from one day to the next, in a market that doesn't change, the price of the ETF will drop by that day's worth of the management fee. So we're talking about fractions of basis points on a daily basis of, of management fee drip. Out. So if you have a stock that doesn't move, if spiders goes from January 1st to December 31st and does not move, the ETF net asset value will be nine basis points lower than it was at the beginning of the year, because that's how the, the fee gets calculated and basically charged by the manager. It's on a daily basis and it just gets extracted from the, from the net asset value of, of the actual fund. It's nothing that's too visible on a day-to-day basis because it's fractions of fractions of percent. So from a from a trading standpoint, it's not something that you're going to notice from one day to the next. On a as a holder, a long-term investor, one will want to consider to pay as little as they can simply because they have been compressed so much. Now, some of the products that are more bespoke, then maybe they have currency overlays or it's a it's a unique strategy and alternative strategy, they'll be more expensive. That's something that tracks a, a regular index like S&P 500 or, or a Dow. That's to be expected that there's a little more special sauce that the manager is doing uh, in order to manage it and, and put it together. But for the most part, the broad-based stuff is, is reasonably cheap. 
Okay. And where can we find out how much those management fees are for each ETF? Is it just, can we just go to somewhere like ETF.com? ETF.com is a very good resource for ETF information. I think they also have comparison kind of tables from, or similar products or products that track similar underliers that they tell you what the, the management fee is. Uh, the issuers themselves by regulation have to publish what they are. They're going to be on, on any Bloomberg screen of, of the this product description. Um, but yeah, ETF.com is, a, is as good a resource for, for anything related to ETFs as, as, uh, as anything else, just because it can, uh, it's so thorough. But yeah, that information is, is out there and, and public, the, the makeup of the baskets is out there as well. So you care about things like that. Yeah. I mean, how much, how much should we care about that sort of thing? Because, you know, there are many ETFs in most cases, there are many ETFs for each sector. You know, should we just be looking at the management fee or is there sort of something else that we should be looking at? Like, should we be looking at the constituents of that ETF? I think before the constituents, the tracking error and a lot of websites, a lot of ETF information websites are starting to, to kind of follow that and post on that because it matters in things that are, I mean, the S&P 500 is very easy to track. MSCI emerging markets, not quite. So there was a big thing a couple of years ago with um, Vanguard talking about their emerging market ETF versus, I think it was uh, iShares emerging market ETF and, and how the tracking error mattered and made a difference to, to, the, to the return of, of the investors in that. So for things that aren't, supremely straightforward, somewhere in the realm of an S&P 500 or a S&P sector, the tracking error metric should be reasonably easy to find. Now, now not, not necessarily be obvious, there's nothing you want to set up out calculating yourself, but then you want the lower tracking error. That tracking error will come from what the manager is using to track the index. And then if, if you want to get a little more more sophisticated, then you want to see what they're actually holding, because in some cases they'll hold the perfect index in others, it's not feasible or, or convenient to do so. So they don't. And then you just want to follow the tracking error. And again, the lower the tracking error, the, the better your returns will be in terms of the benchmark. Excellent. All right, let's leave it at that for now. Where can listeners go to find out more about you? <laughs> Well, I'm not, uh, I'm not, I don't have too much of an online presence. I have a Twitter account that I talk about random things. So mine might not be, uh, might not be that, uh, trading heavy, but so I'm, I'm sorry to disappoint there, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> what is your Twitter handle? Give it out because I'm sure someone will want to follow. Sure. It's at EL underscore nine UAPO. Um, it's basically El Guapo. It's a, it's an old joke from the, the Three Amigos movie. <laughs> Me, being the only Puerto Rican in a, in a trading, in a variety of trading floors and trading groups ends up uh, inevitably with nicknames. <laughs> I can imagine. Well, I'll be sure to include a link to that in the show notes as well. Jorge, thank you very much for coming on the podcast, man. This has been really interesting. It's been really interesting. It's been great to hear your story and I appreciate it. No, no, no. Thanks for having me. Um, uh, it was a really good time. I really enjoyed the, the stuff that you've done. I uh, congratulate you on that. And uh, you, know, you did scoop everybody on Ed Thorpe. So congratulations to you on, uh, on that one. <laughs> cool, man. Cool. Thank you very much for sharing. We'll talk soon. Thank you, buddy. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders. 
But rest assured, there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes. And we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders. Traders.